I recognize that in today's society, we read about persecution in, in lots of places. We sit on television and we sit online. But, but tonight I want us to focus on the church that's persecuted. Before we do that, I know we've just prayed, but I want us to pray for those churches that are persecuted. Because that's essentially what we're talking about tonight. Those churches around the world and those Christians around the world who have experienced or are experiencing persecution uh, for their faith. Would you pray with me for them? And then we're going to get into the study. Let's, let's join to our hearts together. Lord, I, I recognize that it's very comfortable where we live. It's very comfortable at Mount Airy Baptist Church. It's, it's in many ways quite easy to be a Christian in this church and in this community. Uh, people know us as Christians. We know our friends as Christians. Uh, it, it's not that hard to identify ourselves and to follow Jesus Christ. But Lord, we re- also recognize that there are people who live in other places for whom persecution is a very real reality. And we pray for the persecuted church. We pray for those who are in prison tonight. Father, for those who are imprisoned in Iraq. Those who have been jailed and taken away from their families. Simply because they claim the name of Christ. Not for crime, but because of their faith. May you sustain them in a very special way. Lord, I'm thinking of that, that man now. I, I can't think of his name, but you know who he is. Uh, separated from his wife, separated from his precious little children, and in Iraq now for well over a year, probably two years. God, would you be like you were in the book of Acts where you sent an angel to Paul and you sent an angel to encourage Would you go stand beside him, Father? Would you minister to him tonight? God, would you sustain him in his faith as everyone around him attacks his faith? Would you sustain him? Would you strengthen him? And Lord, would you please set him free? Please, Lord, work out in circumstances and set him free. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we looked at the first church in this series of letters, the church at Ephesus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Revelation chapter 2. And the very first letter to the first church is to the church at Ephesus. And we said that there are three ways to view these seven letters. Let me see if you can uh, help us with this now. Let's just kind of review for a moment. What are the three ways that you can view these seven letters? You remember? Do you have it note? Have it in your notes? Yes, that, that this, these are each letters to each church individually. That certainly is true. What's the second way? Yes, that, that these churches represent churches throughout history. In other words, there will always be these kind of churches throughout history. There will always be the church who has left their first love, like the church at Ephesus. There will always be the church at Smyrna who has experienced persecution. Throughout church history, there will always be these kind of churches. What's the third possible way of interpreting these seven letters? Yes, that, it, that this is a prophecy of church history throughout the ages, that, there, that each church represents an age or a, or a period of time. 
And that this is a prophecy that the church will go through these seven different ages, these seven different periods of time. Now what's the, and by the way, very godly men, very wise people believe that, but what's one of the problems with that uh, theory? What, tell us about that, the dates. Yeah, that, depending on who you read, the dates are different when they say, okay, this age is from this date to that date, and this age is from this date to that date. The dates are, are, are different. It's hard to, to really uh, define clearly what each of the ages are. Another problem that would be with this theory is, is the idea that, for example, the church at Smyrna, which is the persecuted church, if you were to say, all right, that represents a certain age, well, persecution is still going on. That age has not passed. Yet those who, who, who use that theory would, would say that that age is primarily past. Uh, but, but there's more people being persecuted now uh, than there has been even in, in all the other years of the church combined in one stat that I saw. All right, so, so that's three ways to view the seven letters. Another question or two about reviewing what we did last week. How big was the church in Ephesus? Anybody remember? We don't have a numerical size, but was it a small church or a large church? It was a large church. In fact, historians tell us it was probably the largest church in New Testament times. It was what we would call today a megachurch. Who started the church in Ephesus? Paul did. How long was Paul in in that strategic city of Ephesus as a church planter? Three years. Very good. Y'all are doing great. Now, uh, this... Last question is my favorite. Who were the two other prominent pastors of that church in its early days? Yes, Timothy and then the Apostle John. And yet in spite of their heritage and in spite of their size, just 40 years later when Jesus looked at the church, what did he see in that church? How did he describe it? Yeah, you've lost your first love. I know that you've had a tremendous heritage. I know that you're tremendous in size. I know that you have great influence and reputation. But as Jesus looked beyond all the externals, when he looked inside deep in their hearts, he says, but here's what I have against you. You've lost your first love. All right, that, that was what we talked about last time, the church at Ephesus. Now let's pick it up. We're going to move on to the church at Smyrna. We may go beyond that. I'm prepared to go uh, way beyond the church at Smyrna, but we'll just see how far we get tonight. Uh, The church at Smyrna is the persecuted church. I want you to think of it in those terms, the persecuted church. Unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, the persecuted church has been growing. I saw some stats that just are mind-boggling. Close to 100,000 Christians are being killed around the world every year. 100,000 Christians being executed for their faith. This is according to Pew Research Survey and the International Society of Human Rights. They say that around 100,000 people are being executed for their faith every year. Let me tell you what that figures out to be. That is 273 Christians killed every day. 11 Christians killed every hour. In the time that we meet here tonight... 11 more Christians will be killed for their faith somewhere in the world. In places like Nigeria, Syria, Kenya, Iraq, stories of Christians being killed by ISIS, 
continue on the news and are almost now commonplace. Have you noticed how it's been developing on the news where it's kind of it's still reported, but it's, it's not the, the great announcement that it used to be. It has almost become commonplace that ISIS has killed another 15, beheaded another 15 Christians. By the way, this is starting in our country as well. Uh, there have been those already who have come to behead American Christians. And also, let me remind you, on October the 2nd, a gunman in Oregon went to a community college and he singled out the Christians in that group of people he had gathered. He asked them each this question, are you a Christian? If they said yes, he shot him in the head. If they said no, he shot him in the leg and wounded him. He killed nine Christians that day in Oregon. So what we have seen in places like Nigeria and places like Syria and Iraq, we will start seeing more and more here in America. Now, the letter to the church at Smyrna was a letter that was written to people who understood that kind of pressure. This letter was written to people who understood the pressure of persecution. They knew what it was like to pay a price for following Christ. They knew what it was like to face the wrath of a government that was hostile to their faith. They knew what it was like to suffer for their Savior. This letter that Jesus sent to these special people was a letter of encouragement. By the way, I told you this last week, but I want to make sure you get this. There are only two churches out of the seven that Jesus commended. There are only two churches out of the seven that Jesus said, well done. One was Smyrna, the other was Philadelphia. And to those two churches, our Lord Jesus had no, had, he, he did not have one critical word uh, to say to, to either of those churches. He didn't say anything critical. He didn't say, you need to fix this to either of those churches. And by the way, I think this is just interesting. But Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two cities that still exist today. I'm going to say their churches still exist, but those are the only two cities that still exist today. They go by different names, but those two cities are still existing today. So let's talk about Smyrna. I want to start off, start off talking about the city before we talk about the church. Let me explain the city to you a little bit so you can get a a little flavor of what that city was like. Smyrna was was a suburb harbor. uh, It had a suburb harbor, and it it made the city an important commercial center. So it was located at a key position on this beautiful harbor. It It was a commercial center. And the leaders of Smyrna, in some ways, were very wise. Now keep in mind these were pagans, but they, they saw the rising power of Rome. And so they decided to build a temple to one of the pagan Roman gods for worship. The leaders in Rome took note of what Smyrna was doing. The leaders in Rome saw how Smyrna was, was yielding to Rome, if you will. Smyrna did it because it was good for business. It's always good to keep your, your enemies at at bay, it's always good to keep the, the, your oppressors at bay. And they thought, well, if we build this temple to the Roma gods, that'll be good for business. So in 23 BC, Smyrna was recognized for their loyalty to Rome. The way that they were recognized was that they were given the honor of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius because of their years of faithfulness to Rome. So in 23 BC, they began to build this temple to Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor. 
So it wasn't long before the city became a, a center for the cult worship or the, the emperor cult worship. By the time of the book of Revelation was written, emperor worship was not just suggested, but by the time the book of Revelation was written, emperor worship was demanded. Now, you and I are going to have to try to put our thinking caps on and understand what that must have been like to live in a place and to live in a time when it was demanded, not just suggested, but it was demanded that you worship the emperor. The churches were persecuted because they would not bow down to Caesar and burn incense to Caesar in his temple. It was a great temple built in Smyrna. A great temple that that was built there for emperor worship. Especially to worship Tiberius. And all they had to do was go into the, into the worship temple, get some, some incense, burn it to the statue of Tiberius, and declare Caesar or Tiberius as Lord. And they could walk out and go do anything they wanted to do. But if you're a Christian, could you do that? No. Because if you're a Christian, who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. So, so it would be not only theologically impossible, but, but it would also be impossible as far as just your own personal convictions for you to walk into a Roman temple, offer incense to a, a pagan idol, uh, the a statue of Tiberius, and worship him by declaring that he is Lord. To be a Christian in, in the Roman Empire during that time meant you had to pay a price. And you had to make a decision. We have some kids in here today, uh, this evening, so I've decided I'm not going to go into the details, though I have them in my notes. The torture that was inflicted on Christians was just despicable. Um, One church historian estimated that during this period of persecution, during this period of Roman persecution, from the time of Nero to Diocletian. It was a period of time where there were ten different Roman emperors. And during this two, three hundred year period of time, from Nero to Diocletian, that during that period of time, it is estimated that five million Christians were martyred for the testimony of Christ. Five million who, who refused to bow down to Caesar. Five million who said, we cannot declare Him to be Lord. There is only one Lord. There is only one God. Now, let me ask you a question, and you can participate a little bit this evening. Why would the government of Rome engage in the destruction of, of its own citizens who were Christians? Why would they do that? Control. Absolutely. Control. What else? Okay. Want everybody to be on their side. What else? Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Why would Rome demand that you bow down to Caesar? Ultimately, I think this is the answer. All of your answers are correct. But ultimately, the answer is this. Satan was behind it. Satan was behind it. Satan was behind the persecution and the the killing of Christians. And this was just one of his ways 
to try to destroy the church. He's always tried to destroy the church. And he continues to try to destroy the church. And so in that context, Christ wrote to the persecuted believers in Smyrna and encouraged them to be faithful, even to the point of death. So now let's look at the text in in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. We'll read the the entire letter to the church and then go back and kind of take it apart a little bit. Beginning in verse 8, to the angel or to the leader of the church in Smyrna, to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write... In other words, Jesus is saying to John, this is what I want you to write down. John, I want you to write these things to the leader, to the pastor of the church in Smyrna. This is my message to them. And here's what what they wrote. These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Remember what I told you last time, that in the first part of the letter, there's always this introduction about who Jesus is, and it ties back to chapter 1 to the vision that John had of Jesus. It's a portion of the vision that John had of Jesus. So this portion of the vision is this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came back to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Not what you have suffered, what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's why I said that really, ultimately, the devil was behind the persecution in Rome. The devil was behind the emperor worship. The devil was the one causing all of these people to be killed. Jesus says it right here. He says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's what he says. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. There's lots of things we can talk about tonight, but let's just start with this identification in verses 8 and 9, where he's basically saying, I know what you're going through. Notice how Christ identifies himself to the church. He identifies himself as the one who died and came to life again. Why do you think that would be significant for this church? Yeah. That's right. They were being killed or would be killed, and it was comforting to be reminded that they were serving the one who died as well, but came back to life again. And then look what he says to them. He says, what's the first two words of verse 9? At least in the NIV. What's the first two words? I know. I know. I know your afflictions. Sometimes, does it help when you realize somebody else knows what you've gone through or what you're going through? Doesn't it help? Doesn't it encourage you a little bit when somebody can say, listen, I know. I know. Here, the Lord Jesus says, I know what's happening, happening to you. I know your afflictions. 
But I also believe he's basically saying this. And I know what it's like. Not only do I know what's happening to you, but I also know what it's like. The one who was slandered, the one who was falsely accused, the one who was beaten, the one who was whipped, the one who was hung on a Roman cross says, I know. I know. I understand. I have faced persecution too. Notice how Jesus described them. He says, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. That word poverty, there's debate sometimes about what kind of, is this spiritual poverty? Is it literal poverty? What does this word mean? I believe he's talking about literal poverty. And here's the reason. Many scholars believe that that he's talking about financial poverty. Because if you became a Christian, one of three things happened. Alright, if you became a Christian in that Roman society, one of three things happened. Number one, the authorities would come and take control of your financial assets. What would it be like for you to wake up tomorrow and realize that the authorities have come and taken your bank account? And now you, you literally don't have anything. That'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? Maybe some of you are thinking, I kind of wish they'd take it over. It'd help me a bunch. <laughs> No, but, but in reality, it would be terrifying. And how in the world would you manage if you woke up tomorrow morning and the authorities had taken over your bank account? One of three things happened. One, they, they could take over your financial assets. Number two, if you're already a Christian, they, they would probably boycott your shop. Roman soldiers would tell everybody else, listen, don't you go to his shop. If you go to his shop, I've got a sword here and we'll talk. And so... nobody could go to your shop. Mark, you've got a business. What would it be like if if somebody came and told all your customers, don't you come back, he's a Christian. If you come back, you'll pay a price for it. All of a sudden, his customers start going down, 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 down. It's hard to make a living when you've got no customers. Right? So they take your financial assets. Number two, uh, they they could take... uh, make others boycott your shop or your business. Or number three, they just make sure you lose your job. They talk to your employer and says, do you understand who you're employed? Who you are employing? Do you understand you've got a Christian working for you? You either, you either get rid of the Christian or we'll get rid of you. Your choice. So those who lived for Christ in Smyrna had a hard time just surviving. And Jesus said, look what he said to them. I know, I know your afflictions and your poverty. You're living in poverty for me. And I know. You don't have hardly anything to eat. You don't have, you have meager resources. You're living in poverty because of your faith in me. And then Jesus says this, but you are rich. They had something that others could never buy. They had a personal relationship with God. I want to tell you something, it doesn't matter how much money in the world you have, you can't ever purchase that. You see, there's two kinds of poverty. There are those who don't know, or there are those who don't have many of the temporary things of this world. That's one kind of poverty. You don't have much of the things of this world. And the other kind of poverty is you don't have the eternal things of heaven. 
Now, if you have to choose, which of those two are you going to choose? Jesus looked at them and said, listen, you may not have many of the things of the world, but you have something that the world could never buy. You're rich. Howard Hendricks was speaking in a a leper colony. It was a place kind of like a hospital for lepers. Uh, Before Hendricks spoke, they had a time of testimony. True story. A woman was sitting on the third row and Hendricks said she held up both hands and all ten fingers were gone. And she said to Howard Hendricks in that time of testimony, I thank God that I'm a leper. She said, because my leprosy brought me to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd rather be a leper and know Him than to be fully whole and not know His grace. Hendricks said, I looked at that woman and I quote, this is what Hendricks said. He said, I looked at her and he said, Lord, I finally found someone who can distinguish between the permanent and the perishable. Someone sitting here tonight, hopefully, you need to recognize that you, you might have a lot of things, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. These Christians in Smyrna, though, didn't have much. They didn't have much at all. They didn't have much in their bank account. They certainly didn't have a shiny new car. They didn't have a big house. When Jesus looked at them, He says, I know your poverty. It's evident. I know. I can see. I know you don't have much. Let me tell you something you do have. You are a child of the King and you are destined for heaven. And you are rich. Someone said that the churches of the first centuries were marked by material poverty and spiritual power Whereas the churches of our day are marked by material wealth and spiritual weakness. And then, look, look how Jesus describes where they're living and what's happening to them. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. But are a, are, are a what? what? What did he call them? The, the place where these Jews were were going to worship and where the slander was coming out of. In other words, there was this group of Jews and they were slandering these Christians. And so what did Jesus call that group? Isn't that kind of harsh? Look what he says. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is probably referring to Jews who lived in Smyrna who were cohorts with the Romans. And joining forces with the Romans, they were opposing and persecuting the Christians. Remember now, even in the New Testament days, the Jews by and large did not like the Christians. It was the Jews who who persecuted Christ, who crucified Christ. It was the Jews who locked up Paul and and Silas, and put them in the Roman prison. It, 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 was, it was the Jews who were opposing the people of God. And we, we could get into why all of that was happening, and, and I'm not trying to slander the Jews, because the Jews still are God's chosen people. And, and let me tell you something, you need to make sure that you honor God's chosen people. Uh, but there's a powerful lesson here that we need to remember. 
these people who had a religious heritage were being used by Satan for his purposes. Satan uses people to accomplish his purposes. And sometimes those people are religious people. Any church, any synagogue, any group of people who preach a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ is a synagogue of Satan. Regardless of what name is out on the sign. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said, I know where you live. I know what you're experiencing. I know what you're going through. And I know about the slander that's coming from some of those religious people who claim to be Jews, but they're not. And Jesus said, what they really are is this. They're really a synagogue of Satan. Then verse 10, he's got a word of explanation for it. For these people in Smyrna, these Christians. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Notice that. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Can I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when you truly are following Christ, not yet in America, or at least not often in America, but in other places of the world, certainly this is true, and one day it likely will be true in America, but when you are truly following Christ, when you are a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, suffering is not an elective. For the child of God, it is a required course. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus said, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That's why Peter said what he did. Put your finger there in Revelation 2. Let's, let's go to 1 Peter real quickly. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are what? Suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. I just stop there for you. You don't even need to read beyond that. Peter says, I'll tell you something. Don't be surprised at, at the trials that you go through as if this was something strange, as, as if this was something out of the ordinary. No, he says, verse 13, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you, and then he goes on to say, verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The reason they're insulting you is because they see Jesus in you. Verse 15, if you suffer should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or, or even as a meddler. In other words, if you get in trouble and, and people are after you, it shouldn't be because you're doing the wrong thing. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, you might want to underline this, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't know that verse very well in America yet, but there's coming a day when we will. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. 
And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, go back to Revelation chapter 2. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus gives us a crucial perspective on, on suffering. The second part of verse 10, he says, I tell you, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. That, that just so intrigues me how he says this. He didn't say, I tell you, the emperor will put some of you in prison. It's not the Roman emperor that will put you in prison. There's a devilish hand behind his hand. Satan is behind all persecution. And Satan is behind persecution done even in the name of religion. You remember 9-11? You remember where you were on 9-11? May I remind you that 9-11 was done in the name of religion? The ISIS beheadings, could I remind you? As gruesome, as grotesque as those are, the ISIS beheadings are done in the name of religion. Jesus said, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be be faithful, even to the point of death. And I'll give you the crown of life. You know, it's amazing. The church has always been the purest and, and and the strongest when it's going through a time of suffering. I heard about a pastor who went to India. He went to a pastor's conference just outside the communist-controlled states where it was against the law to preach the gospel. And and these group of pastors found their way across the border and they went to this pastor's conference there in kind of that neutral zone. And three men came to the conference who had just been let out of prison for preaching the gospel. I mean, they had just gotten out of prison for preaching the gospel. And they came to this pastor's conference and, and the question was, what's it like in your churches? And the answer was, it's just like in the book of Acts. The more they persecute us, the more we flourish. He went on to explain, he said, we had to start two services. Because more people were, were coming to our church. And then we started three services. And then we started four services. And then, and then we're, he said, now we're up to five services every Sunday. He said, but then one day, now these are all pastors who came to that conference. He said, then one day some of the elders came to me and said, Pastor, we've got a problem. He said, what is it? He said, some of the people here are attending more than one service. So the pastor got up the next week and he says, all right, now I've got an announcement to make. You can only come to one service. And if we see you in more than one service, we will call you out and ask you to leave because you're taking a seat that somebody else needs. And that worked for a while, but more people kept coming. And more people kept coming. Even though the church was under persecution and suffering, more people kept coming. Because when the church is under its hardest times, it's growing at its fastest rate. And more people kept coming. And finally, the pastor got up one Sunday and says, From now on, here's what we're going to do. If you come this Sunday, you stay home next Sunday. So here, here's the plan. It's one Sunday on, and it's one Sunday off. They're doing it just like we do at Mount Airy. <laughs> Except they're doing it for a different reason. 
Listen to this. This is true. This is true. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. That's not only a physical law, it's also a spiritual law. And the rest of the verse says, he said, and Jesus said, and you will suffer persecution for how long? Ten days. Now, I've got to be honest with you and tell you, we don't know exactly how, what, what, that, what that means. Did it mean ten literal days? Is it a specific period of time? Uh, you know, is it just a way of saying this specific period of time? Or, or does it mean that you will suffer, uh, there's ten periods of time, you know, like the ten different Roman emperors. Was that what it was referring to? That for ten days, one day for each period of, Roman, uh, of the Roman emperors that, that ruled. Uh, we don't know exactly, but, but here's what I want you to get out of this. Jesus said, there will be a starting point and there will be an ending point, and I know what it is. You'll suffer for ten days. And he said in verse... What did he, what did he tell him in the last part of verse 10? After he told him he'd suffer for ten days, what did he tell them? Well, first of all, he says, be faithful. Be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is the winner's crown that was awarded at the annual athletic games... Uh, the, uh, the crown of life is just another way of saying, I will give you eternal life. Uh, James 1.12. Um, let, let's look at, the, look at that real quick. James 1.12. James 1.12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that, that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who withstands the test. Hang tough, keep going, don't throw in the, don't throw in the towel, and when you get to the end, it'll all be worth it. Essentially, that's what it's saying. And he says, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all, by the second death. It doesn't say we won't be hurt, but it says that we, don't, we will not be hurt by the second death. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says, it's appointed unto man wants to die, and then the judgment. The enemy has the potential and the power to kill our bodies, but the Christian need not fear the second death. You know why? Because the second death is another way of referring to hell. And though the enemy may kill our body, the enemy can do nothing to our soul. We do not have to fear the second death. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, will give you some perspective on this. Uh, I'm about to run out of time, so I'm going quickly. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's, he's to, who is that person? Be afraid of the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. Who's the only one that can do that? God. So he's saying, you don't need to be afraid of the enemy. He might be able to, to do something to kill your body, but he can't do anything to kill your soul. The only one who can kill the body and the soul is God, and the only time that God's going to do that is at the end of the world, at the judgment time, and then the Bible says we'll be cast into the lake of fire, into hell, and that is referred to as the second death. 
Uh, I think I've got a scripture I can give you on that one. Um, I just lost it. I'm sorry. I, I thought I had it here. Um, I don't want to close by telling you a true story. AD 156 was the year. AD 156. The pastor in the church at Smyrna. Remember, we're talking about Smyrna. The pastor in the church at Smyrna, AD 156, was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a man who was personal friends with John the Apostle. It is believed that Polycarp was the last living person that knew, the, that knew an apostle personally. Polycarp was uh, well, acqu- well acquainted with John the Apostle, maybe others as well. And in A.D. 156, while serving as the pastor of the church in Smyrna, Polycarp was arrested and marched into the amphitheater there in the city. A mob gathered and was waiting to see what form of punishment would be inflicted on this pastor. They were waiting to see the violent death that he would experience. As he stood before the proconsul, he was instructed and commanded to deny Christ. But he refused to do so. As the old man stood before the crowd, the governor shouted, I will have you destroyed by the fire if you don't renounce Christ. Polycarp answered, Eighty-six years have I served Him, and He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? So they took the old man, the old pastor, and they tied him to a pole. And they covered him in flammable material. And they set him on fire. The pastor of the church at Smyrna. As the flames begin to curl around his body, Polycarp yelled out, but it wasn't a yell of, of, of pain. But as the flames began to curl around his body, he yelled out this prayer. I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be part of the number of martyrs to die for Christ. And those were his last words. The pastor of the church of Smyrna. Jesus wrote them a letter, but He also is writing us a letter. Be faithful. He says, be faithful even to death and I'll reward you. So tomorrow, when you have the opportunity to take a stand for Christ, do not hesitate to do so. This week, when you're pressured a little bit to back up on your Christian faith, this week when you're pressured a little bit to back up on your Christianity, I'm not talking about trying to be showy. I'm not trying to... I'm not talking about trying to be obnoxious. I'm just talking about you're trying to live out your faith. By the way, I admire the football coach. Where is this? Uh, In Washington, the football coach who was simply taking a knee and praying on the field with his players and somebody uh, complained and said, we don't like that, and now they're firing him or trying to do so. 
I admire the football coach who went out the next game, got on the field again, and got down on the knee again and said, let's pray. He's not going to back up on his faith simply because somebody else says he ought to be quiet. I could get started on that one, but I'm not going to. But when you have that opportunity to simply live out your faith, here's what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna and what He says to the church at Mount Airy. Be faithful. Be faithful. Be faithful. Even unto death. Thank You, Father. Thank You so much that we have a faith that we can live and a faith that we can hold on to and a faith that you will one day reward. Help us this week in the days to come when we have the opportunity to live for Jesus. May we choose to do that without hesitation. May we not give in to denying Christ, but may we live for Christ every day. It's in His name I pray. Amen.